Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do we got today? Well, today we're going to talk about skirmishes between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, skirmishes between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement meeting that happened last week, and where all this is leading us, you know, uh, particularly when it comes to Russia. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, Taiwan has been hit with an 8.6 magnitude earthquake. Uh, This comes amid Biden making more promises to defend this island um, and propagating a policy which, in my uh, not-so-humble opinion, is going to end in disaster. Although, my not-so-humble opinion hasn't quite got us to where we need to be, which is not over there, but, you know, hey, at least someone said it, you know, uh, but, but I'll say this, I'm not fighting a war for Taiwan, I ain't doing it, I'm just, I'm just not, it's not my country, so we can make these promises, but I don't think it's a good idea to make promises you can't keep, and when it comes to interventions and saying, we're going to do this to this country if they do this. I don't think it's a good idea to be writing checks that your army can't cash. The U.S. military, for all its might, can't win this battle. I've said it multiple times. I've laid out my reasoning why. I'll do it in a short form right now for those of you who haven't heard my previous explanations. Taiwan's an island. It's 100 miles away from the Chinese mainland. No matter how many carriers we bring to bear, the only way we can, you know, stop a blockade of Taiwan, which is going to happen, the the Chinese literally ran, they literally practiced for a blockade of the island, a naval and air blockade, when when Pelosi went to Taiwan, uh, further confirming my belief that that's what they were going to do in the event of a war, and they have proven that that's what they're going to do, at least as far as we can tell, evidence-wise. So they're going to put the island under blockade. The only way you can break that blockade is to get ships and planes close enough to hit the Chinese ships and the Chinese air assets that are, you know, enacting the blockade. But doing that would put our Navy in range of Chinese anti-air missiles, anti-ship missiles. It put them in range of the Chinese Navy and the Chinese Air Force. And the Chinese Air Force is the big one because... Uh, you'll see many people who bring up comparisons between the number of carriers between the U.S. and China. China does not need carriers to fight us two inches away from their mainland. The Chinese mainland is right there. We have to cross an ocean to get there. The Chinese don't. Their entire air force can be brought to bear if they wanted to do so. They do not need carriers for this conflict. Uh, A jet fighter can, most jet fighters, modern ones, can go Mach 2, bare minimum. Some of them can go higher. That's two times the speed of sound, the speed of sound being roughly, if my numbers are correct, 760 miles an hour. 
So you double that, and that's 1,400 miles an hour. What have you? Uh, well, about 1,500 miles an hour. You can cross a distance of 100 of 100 miles to cross the Straits of Taiwan. In very, you can you can do that very quickly. It, it doesn't take very long. Uh, I remember under 10 minutes is around what we're looking at for not even crossing the strait but going from the chinese east coast to the east coast of taiwan so that's an extra hundred miles you're talking about there 10 minutes is all it takes maybe you can add five five minutes if they're launching from deeper within china but these are the speed of modern day jets so they can get past taiwan in a matter of minutes from the moment that they're scrambled and then it only takes them a couple more minutes to get to, say, the Philippine Sea or to Okinawa and, you know, th those various Japanese islands that the U.S. has troops on if we choose to involve those bases in the conflict, which would make them targets. Th that's the space of battle here, roughly stretching from the Philippines to the southern shores of Japan, that the first island chain is what they call it. So... That's the space of battle here. The Chinese Air Force can get there, which means that they can hit our ships if we get close enough for them to do so. And if the Chinese Air Force can reach us, the Chinese anti-ship missiles can reach us, which means that it's lights out for any carrier that's unlucky enough to be within that range. It's a killing field. Getting close enough to save Taiwan is a killing field. So it's... What, it's just it's just not a winning battle, not for us anyway. the The battle space does not favor the means by which we wage war. Our navy that that's the only way we can wage this war against China. And the navy's beat. It has it doesn't have the room to maneuver. Like if it was just U.S. and China, and we weren't throwing in defending Taiwan as a prerequisite, well, the navy can operate farther away from China's shores. That's a different argument. But if you're saying we have to defend Taiwan, that means getting close to Taiwan. That means at some point putting troops on Taiwan. Taiwan is a stationary target well within the range of every missile that the Chinese have. The ports will get bombed. The airports will get bombed. The tunnels will be bombed. The air bases, the, the military bases, they'll be bombed. Every point of logistics will be bombed. The warehouses, the supply depots, they're going to be bombed because they're all within range of China's missiles. The Chinese air, they're all within range of the Chinese air force. It does not take aircraft carriers for the Chinese to carry out these sorts of operations. And that's before you get into the fact that helicopters exist and paratroopers exist. All China needs is air superiority to land troops on that island, theoretically. Realistically, they'll probably go for the joint approach, which is what we did on D-Day, where we sent paratroopers before and then we did the naval invasion. It's going to be a land and sea, uh, not a land and sea, an air and sea assault, except they're going to have helicopters, which is something we didn't have in World War II. They're going to have helicopters. So you're looking at really unfavorable battle conditions for the United States in this conflict. So unfavorable due to really the missiles in the, the Chinese Air Force. That we just, we can't win here. Not if we're trying to defend Taiwan. If defending Taiwan is the objective, we're going to lose. And that's just the facts. That is the facts. Now, if push comes to shove, I might end up being wrong. Uh, we'll see. You know, it's really hard to play that one off when I've made such a bold prediction. If 
U.S. forces on Taiwan uh, do defend the island successfully, even though we uh, officially don't have troops on Taiwan Island. But, you know. So, we will see if I'm right or wrong based on who wins this war that people are so desperate to get into. I think I'm right. And hopefully we don't have to find out. But that's Taiwan. Uh, and we'll, we'll just move on from there. Uh, I've gotten into more in-depth discussions before but on the justifications for war, but those are in previous episodes. So if you want more of that, you can check out my lovely catalog, which I'm now uploading to various social media platforms like Twitter. Uh, that's, my, that's my plug, by the way. So then we have Turkey seeking to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. We'll talk more about that organization later on in this episode and why this move is pretty important. We have, uh, let me see this, Demisani Blasius Kumalo. Uh, he, this is an aide to the recently crowned Zulu King Misuzulu. Yes, Zulu is in his name. Uh, this aide to the king was killed in a shooting. Uh, people say that they don't know who the shooter is. Uh, was, it, was it just domestic or was it some sort of foreign agent involved? It's unclear at this time. Uh, I already went over Biden defending Taiwan, and the and the context for that was it was a 60 Minutes interview, and he was basically asked twice. He was asked once he said we would def- we have a commitment to defend them, and then he was asked to clarify. You know, that's a pretty big statement, especially when the the official stance is strategic ambiguity, a policy I hate, uh, for the opposite reason that most others do. I, I want to clear and cut. No, we're not going to defend these people. Instead of, oh, you know, maybe we will, maybe we won't. Uh, we'll, we'll give them the, the tools to defend themselves. Even if those tools happen to be U.S. troops, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't like strategic ambiguity. It's just unnecessary. It is unnecessary ambiguity. You need clarity is what you need. Ambiguity is what gets you into wars. Clarity is what you need. Uh, then you have, speaking of things that make things worse, we have Nancy Pelosi, who... Just a, a couple weeks ago, took a trip to Taiwan and probably got the island killed by getting the Chinese to mobilize for war. Not mobilize and call up their troops, but I mean like to put into action their the basics of their battle plan, which is to strangle the island into submission through a naval and air blockade. She did that just by making this trip to Taiwan. Uh, and now she's taking a trip to Armenia. Uh, so just like with the trip to Taiwan, all I can ask is why? Okay. What, what's your purpose in doing this? What, what do you gain? What do I gain? Forget her. <laughs> what, what do I gain from this? How do I benefit from you going to this country? And more importantly, what am I going to have to pay for it? You know? Because they go around starting these wars. Someone's got to fight them. And... I'm assuming that the dinosaurs in office aren't going to be the ones on the battlefield. So, am I going to have to get drafted so we can go fight Russia and go fight China? I'll be one draft dodging. Ma- <laughs> I'll be one draft dodger, I'll tell you that. I do not endorse committing crimes. I, I feel legally obliged to say something like that. But, man, she's taking this trip to Armenia. And we'll, we'll actually talk about Ar- Armenia later on. Uh, from what I can tell, her goal is to try to get Armenia to 
ditch Russia and come to the United States, uh, mainly using Armenia's fears of being bullied by Azerbaijan now that the dynamics have shifted. And again, we'll talk more about this later in the episode. So she's offering up U.S. assistance to Armenia. Um, but the Duran, Alexander of the Duran, made a great point. How is the United States feasibly going to even get get to Armenia? How are we going to get there? Because Turkey made it very clear back in the the war on terror, the early days of the war on terror, that they were more than comfortable with denying us access of their airspace, even when we were at war. Or oh. so, if we if they can just choose to deny us their airspace and that's okay, then. If they don't want us in Armenia, we're not going to be in Armenia. Turkey backs Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is the aggressor against Armenia. Azerbaijan and Armenia had beef. They they fought a war in 2020. They've been fighting skirmishes ever since. Turkey still backs Azerbaijan. So, how are we going to get to this country? How, how are we going to get there? I mean... That that's before you get to the fact that it's, it's a landlocked country, you know, uh, it does not have access to any of the coastlines. Do we go through Georgia to get there? What, what if Turkey uh, and this was brought up by the Duran as well? What if Turkey closes the straits? How are you gonna get there? How are you gonna get? You gotta fly to Romania, then you gotta fly to Georgia, and then you can get to Armenia. That that's quite the workaround. But okay, you get there, then what? The Russians don't want you there. The Turks don't want you there. The Iranians sure as hell don't want you there. And all of them might just find common cause in getting you out. If there was ever a common cause to be had between these three. What can the United States do for Armenia? Realistically. And that's before you get into ideological questions such as, Why do we have to do shit for them? Why can't they do something for us? You know, what? Why don't our allies do something for us for a change? That uh, Here's a secret. That's the ideology I fall onto, but I digress. But seriously, we're offering up more commitments at a time when we can barely maintain the commitments we already have. I mean, we offered up free commitments to Ukraine. We just gave 60, what are we up to, 60 billion now to Ukraine? Well, how are, and, and look how that's going for them. How are we going to come to Armenia's defense at the same time that we're talking about Taiwan, that we're talking about Ukraine, that we're talking about what's going to happen to Europe in the winter, uh, which uh, the clock really is ticking. We're, we're past halfway through September. October is knocking on the door or as we speak. October is knocking on the door. I, we're about to see a humanitarian crisis in Europe, and that's going to that's going to test the alliance between the U.S. and Europe when the Europeans realize we aren't going to do jack squat for them. That we really can't do jack squat for them. We, we can't give them the energy they need. We, we can't. We, we, they don't have the LNG terminals. We don't have the LNG terminals. We don't even produce enough gas for ourselves. We were at $3 a gallon two years ago. We're at four and a half now. And it's probably going to go up as it gets colder here. Because we need the gas. We, we have winters too. We can't help them. So that's one commitment. Uh, one being a whole lot. Because there's a lot of countries in Europe 
That's one commitment we can barely hold on to. While at the same time we're talking about Taiwan, while at the same time we're talking about Ukraine, where's the room for Armenia here? Where is the room for Armenia? I don't see it. I mean, sure, you can add them to the list, but realistically, can you maintain all these commitments at the same time? I don't think you can. I don't think we can. Again, don't make promises you can't keep. Don't write checks you can't cash. And boy, my government loves writing checks they can't cash. Well, actually, then they, they, can, they can cash the checks. It's just the money won't be worth a damn when they give it to you. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just going to Armenia. And... Uh, I remember back when, uh, and this is just a, a side note. I'm, I'm I'm going off on a tangent here, but I, I'm on a roll, so I'm just gonna keep going. Uh, there, there was I remember back when she went to Taiwan, and the news. I was watching some of the news surrounding it. It was the big thing of the day, and well, one of the news I saw around this uh, this guy. He he was going on a tangent about her legacy, Nancy Pelosi's legacy. Uh, this, this is her legacy. She wants to be remembered for this. Uh, you know she's. She's getting ready. She doesn't know if she's going to run again. You know, she's getting she's getting up there in age and she just wants to. Uh, this is about her legacy. And I'm, I'm just sitting here going, I. I really don't care about her legacy. Like she had she had 50 million years to think about that one. She's been around since the time of the dinosaurs. I mean, uh, guys, lovely listeners. Didn't you know that she's been here since Jamestown? No. Although some archaeologists claim to have found evidence of earlier habitation. I digress. We'll find out. They can bring their proof. But she's had plenty of time to think about her legacy. And in fact, if we're being honest with ourselves, she already has one. And it's a legacy of corruption, ineptitude, and lies. So anyway, Nancy decided she wanted to go to Armenia. And that's what she did probably causing more problems than she has solved in this trip. Hopefully it doesn't get Armenia killed like it probably got Taiwan killed. But luckily Armenia has the giant next door on its side rather than being at odds with the giant next door. So there's a fundamental difference in these positions. But we'll see if the Armenians take the bait. Remember she basically offered US assistance in place of Russian assistance. So we'll, we'll see if the Armenians take that. And what that gets them. I imagine it'll de facto put Russia on the side of Turkey and Azerbaijan. And then uh, Armenia dies. So we'll see. We will see. Um, then we have uh, Kazakhstan. The Kazakhstani president, Kasim Tokayev, has signed a number of constitutional amendments, which were passed by the parliament, extending one presidential terms to seven years. And the other one renamed their capital back to Astana. Uh, for a while, it was named Nur Sultan after the previous president, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. Uh, gee, <laughs> way to be subtle. But there's that. You have Eritrea mobilizing uh, their military forces in light of renewed fighting in Ethiopia. I guess the ceasefire has broken down there, and perhaps we might see a conclusion to this. Or we'll just see higher and higher casualty figures. Egypt increases the toll fee for passage through the Suez Canal. And this this is a pretty big one. Because uh, there's a lot of trade that goes through the Suez Canal. Uh, like, 
I believe, I believe, the last time I checked, it was around 18 to 19 trillion dollars. I think it was trillion. I think it was trillion. I'm definitely not going to pause my recording to check that. Yeah. No, no, it was one trillion. Now, I definitely didn't look that up while I had the recording paused. <laughs> but that's a trillion. Uh, a trillion dollars every year in goods that goes through it. And Egypt is now increasing the passage fee by 15%. So, if you remember way, way back in my talks on the potential for a new Ottoman Empire and the potential there is for Turkey in the south, I brought up the Suez Canal and the fees on goods moving through. Egypt just raised the fees at will. They, they just raised it. Now imagine what a new Ottoman Empire could have done with that. Mm. We'll see. We will see. But this is going to affect trade because, uh, again, a trillion dollars is not a small sum. Uh, the total trade between the U.S. and China back in, like, 2018 was $660 billion. And we get basically everything from China. So you're talking a really large sum of money that goes through this canal, and now there's a fee that goes up by 15%. That's going to bring in a lot of revenue for Egypt and is going to increase costs for everyone else who has to use the canal. So we're probably gonna, we're probably looking at global recession territory, but at the very least, Egypt knows how to look out for number one. Uh, then we have skirmishing between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And we will get into more of that later on in the episode. But that is the rapid fire, and we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, time to get into the meat of this episode. And we're going to be talking about the Shanghai Cooperation Ag Agreement. Uh... Well, organization. Uh, I don't know why I put agreement there. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting that happened last week. Uh, they met in Samarkand, Uzbekistan. Uh, Uzbekistan is a part of the SCO, and the SCO in total consists of India, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Iran, China, and Russia. And Turkey tried to join. Uh, I don't think it went through quite. I don't think it quite went through. But that's the direction they're trying to go in now. So I'd imagine that at some time in the near future, they may be allowed in. And it'll probably take a little bit more economic integration first. Maybe they'll sign onto the Belt and Road, something like that. But for the time being, Turkey, even though they haven't joined the SCO is seeking integration with some of the countries in the SCO. Uh, again, you had integration with Russia. You're looking at integration with China. And those are pretty big players. Uh, and we'll see if they go for Iran as well. Not entirely sure about the Iran part about this. But this is the direction that Turkey is moving in. This is the direction that Russia is moving in. Uh, they're already a part of the organization, but when you, well, I'll, I'll get into it more in a little bit, but this organization has jumped to the forefront in light of these global transitions going on right now, uh, which has been brought to light by the Russo-Ukrainian War. 
and the subsequent economic war, which was brought down on the Russians. And so what is the SCO? This is an organization, I named off its members, and it's primarily centered in the heart of Eurasia. All the Stan countries, minus Afghanistan, are a part of it. Uh, you have the big boy Russia, big boy China, you have Iran, you have India, and you almost have Turkey. And that would really round it out. I mean, looking at a map here, you have Central Asia, and then you have all the great powers surrounding Central Asia, and Central Asia being the, the various Stan countries. You have all the great powers surrounding that large area that used to be a part of the Soviet Union, that is no longer a part of Russia. All the great powers surrounding there are integrated into this organization, with Turkey on the way. So it's really centered here in the heart of Eurasia. It's a quintessential Eurasian project. And it's, it's, a, it's a project that is economic in nature. It's not a military alliance. It's not an agreement that, hey, we'll, you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. And in the event of a potential, maybe theoretical war, we will jump, come to your defense. It's not like that. Uh, Russia has its own thing for that. Turkey backs Azerbaijan. Uh, China, uh, they, they de facto back North Korea, so there's that. But there are not quite, it's not a military alliance. It's purely economic, and they work together. This uh, The members primarily discuss trade as a result of this. Uh, trade and development projects between countries countries within the block of course and otherwise you defeat the purpose of having this block so you have the belt and road of course overlaying this you have the eurasian economic union which is russia's economic union which also overlays this same region of central asia you have iran reaching in you have turkey trying to reach in as well India's starting to look beyond its own horizons. It might come in as well. They're looking for pipeline deals from the Russians, so those pipelines are probably going to pass through this region as well. Pakistan wants pipelines. Those pipelines are probably going to pass through this region as well, just to get there. Now then you have various rail, rail lines and roads and those projects that are going to be coming from China, which means you're going to have infrastructure running north. To, you're going to have energy infrastructure running north to south from Russia, to the southern belt of countries running from Turkey through Iran, through Pakistan, through Turkey to China. Uh, and then you're going to have transportation infrastructure from east to west running from China through the this same region and through those same countries all the way to Turkey and Russia. So you have a, a, a really strong interweaving how do I interweaving pressure from the needs of those that southern belt of countries from Turkey to India and the things that Russia and China are able to provide. Russia has the energy, China has the goods, China has they both together have the development that the southern belt needs, and it all crosses through Central Asia which makes this block so powerful. And it, it, China and Russia are really the glue here. They're quintessential 
to this. They're, they're very, very essential. I keep saying quintessential. That's kind of my new favorite word as of right now. But this is a powerful force. Russia and China together are already very powerful. But when you combine them, the two in a block, a block with other large, powerful countries, I mean, these are these are great powers we're talking about. India, Iran, Turkey, these are, these are great powers we're talking about here. And if all of them except for Turkey are already a part of the SCO. This economic organization that censors on trade and on development projects that have two of the best countries for development projects within it, that's a very powerful force. That's a very powerful economic force. And again, it's all about Eurasia here. So Turkey being one of the two quintessential Eurasian nations, and this time I meant to say the word quintessential, uh, the other quintessential Eurasian nation being Russia. These two are Eurasian. I mean, who else can you think of when you think of Eurasian nations? Russia literally straddles Europe and Asia. Turkey literally straddles Europe and Asia. No one else can claim that. No one else can even hope to claim that without being an empire again. The British would have to be an empire again to do that. The French would have to be an empire again to do that. And even then, you're an empire, not a nation when you do that. The Turkish nation is Eurasian. The Russian nation is Eurasian. Nobody else has that. Everybody else is either European or they're Asian. So those are two very important countries to have when you're talking about Eurasia and when you're talking about this Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, which is an organization based in Eurasia. And what you're seeing with them and with this organization is they're trying to map out a framework for moving beyond U.S. hegemony. Because that was the, the primary theme that I took away from their meeting. It was how do you get away from U.S. hegemony? How do you get away from the U.S. dollar? How can we make ourselves less vulnerable, if not invulnerable, to U.S. sanctions like Russia did? How do we do what the Russians did for ourselves? Because why wouldn't we want to do that? Who wants to stay vulnerable to the United States? Who wants to sanction basically half the countries on this list? <laughs> why, why would Iran choose not to become immune to sanctions? Why would China, looking at the prospect for conflict over Taiwan... Why would they not want to make sure their economy was as insulated as it can be from U.S. sanctions? How do we get away from the U.S. hegemony? How do we get away from the U.S. dollar? How do we make ourselves in, impervious to these attacks that are inevitably going to come from us exercising our, well, our power and our influence in our neighborhoods? Because they're going to do it. They're great powers. They have their interests. They're going to act in those interests. How can we make sure that when we act in our interests, in our neighborhoods, that we don't, we don't get crippled by this, this foreigner, this outsider who thinks it's their business to meddle in everyone else's affairs? Gee, I wonder who that outsider could be. But this is the primary takeaway that I got from the meeting. This is the primary topic of discussion. And what was interesting 
and some of this isn't necessarily a part of the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, but this is some of the things we saw leading up to this, uh, which undoubtedly got brought up, was moving away, uh, not, not just moving away from the dollar, but what exactly that alternative is going to be. And Russia's really leading the way here. You have Russia and China agreeing to do deals in the yuan, which is China's currency, and the ruble, which is Russia's currency. You had Russia and India agreeing to do trade in rubles and rupees. Rubles, again, being Russia's currency and rupees being India's currency. You had Turkey and Russia making agreements to do trade in lira, which is Turkey's currency, and rubles. I already told you twice. It's Russia's. And then when you look when you look through though that list of countries, you, you see the trend here, which is that Russia, again, Russia's leading the way here, but you also notice that these countries are making agreements to, for uh, these, they're making currency exchange agreements with Russia when they don't necessarily have currency exchange agreements when, with each other. And uh, maybe this, maybe this could just be uh, a for the time being thing. It's just convenient to do it through Russia uh, because Russia's leading the initiative on this. This isn't like we all, they all got together and said, okay, we're all just going to do this with Russia. No, it's, it's Russia reaching out to make these deals. Russia reaching out to India, Russia reaching out to Turkey, Russia reaching out to China. And they've, in effect, and again, this could just be a for the time being type of thing. Russia has become a, a middleman, a sort of spoke. Uh, uh, if you, a, a spoke being the, the center of a, a wheel where you have all the, all the spikes coming into the center. So Russia has made itself the center of these financial transactions at the time that we're discussing Eurasian integration. And again, who better to make, who better to be that middleman than one of the quintessential Eurasian nations? Uh, um, I'm sorry if you're tired of me saying quintessential. <laughs> I can't get it off the tongue. But who, who's the better, who's a better country for this? Uh, aside from maybe Turkey, but Russia's geography is just better. They have more access to all the countries, Turkey included. And again, I'll stress for the final time, this could just be a short-term thing, but Russia's become the middleman here, and that they're and this is because they've led the way. But I imagine that this currency exchange agreement and these deals will eventually make their way down to each individual country, where instead of India getting rubles, Pakistan getting rubles, Iran getting rubles, and they can use the ruble as a medium of exchange for each other's currencies because they all make deals in their own currencies and the rubles, which makes the ruble a de facto reserve currency, if you think about it. Um, they could eventually move away from that sort of a system and just moving from one hegemony to another, and they can go, India has rupees and they make an agreement with China for yuan, and they, the Chinese make an agreement with Pakistan. Uh, I forget what they're currency is at the moment um but you could have turkey making agreement with uh china as well you exchange lira for yuan i imagine that that's the direction that they'll eventually go in but for the time being russia set themselves up really nicely to become a de facto reserve currency at the time that they're being waged war on this economic war that's being waged on them 
where they've been denied access to the world's reserve currency right now, which is the dollar. And ironically, they've become a reserve currency of their own. And that's, that's the irony here. And it was made largely possible by this integration, this deep integration that they've already done, that they're still doing, this integration that they've done with Eurasia. And it, again, it's, it's not just Russia. I, I'm not entirely sure why this meeting specifically, they've had plenty of meetings before, I'm not sure why it was this meeting specifically that made it click in my mind that this is, this, this is the long game we're watching here with this integration with these countries of Eurasia and with the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, the Eurasian Economic Union, the Belt and Road. This is the long game for not just Russia, but for China. Uh, increasingly for India and Pakistan and Iran. They're taking advantage of these trends that are happening. Uh, the, the Belt and Road coming out of China, the, Euro, the Eurasian focus of Russia, th that southern belt of countries from Turkey to India, they're taking advantage of this for their own benefit, but they're also contributing to the success of these policies on the part of Russia and China, which, for, which just reinforces the cycle and makes it a stronger block. So when you have that at play, you get an opportunity for a long game to be played. This is the long game for Russia. This is the long game for China. Maybe it's just the short, the short game for Turkey and Iran. Maybe they just need so, to relieve some of the pressure off their backs for the short term and then they go their own way later. We don't know. But the option for this being the long game is there. And we can more clearly see that it is the long game for, again, Russia and China. India is just now stepping out. We'll see what they do, whether they decide to take their own course. Uh, they have their look east policy, um, which is, uh, again, they're, they're, they're just getting their footing together for what exactly they want to do with their foreign policy. And when they decide on how they want to pursue said foreign policy... Of course, we're going to be here to talk about it and see how it impacts the rest of their neighborhood. But this is the long game. Regardless of what that is, it's going to be Eurasian in nature. Whatever Iran's long game is, it's going to be Eurasian. Turkey has the option of being European, African, or Asian, or Eurasian if they want it to be. They have more options than Russia in that regard. But as far as Iran, Pakistan, India, China, Russia go... It's Eurasia, all the way. And for some reason, this meeting here made it click in my mind that that was the case. And again, it's not just Russia and China, although th those are going to be the countries that everyone else focuses on when they talk about uh, the transition away from the West and the other, th these new organizations. Uh, this isn't necessarily new, but it's relatively new, but not really new. But these new alliances, these new policy shifts and these new agreements that are being made as the tides are turning and the, the tables start shifting and the new world order, if you want to use it that way, if you want to use that term, uh, that, that term has a lot of baggage, which is why I choose not to use it a lot, but it's pretty accurate. The, whatever the new world order happens to be, it's, it, we're, we're watching the transition as we speak right now to whatever it ends up being. 
It's probably going to be multipolar in nature. That, that much I'm almost certain of. It's going to be multipolar. And it's important to recognize that multipolar is going to mean India, Iran, and Turkey as much as it means Russia, China, United States. Because, again, most other commentators who bring up the multipolar world look primarily to those three. Uh, it's it's sort of a an unintentional blind spot that I've noticed. It, it's not necessarily that they're uh, that they can be really faulted for that. I mean, these are the big boys that everyone's talking about that really move the world, so to speak. But I think it's important to look at those other players. I mean, India has the same population as China. They're going to have a larger population in a minute, and they're industrializing. They're going to be a massive great power. They're projected to have a, one of the largest economies, if not the largest, by the end of the century. So I don't think it's wise to discount them so quickly uh, in favor of just looking at Russia, China, and the United States. Iran, while they might not reach the same heights, they are the dominant power of the Middle East. They, they're going to have a say. Turkey has lots of influence that it can use and sometimes uses effectively, sometimes not. If Turkey ever gets a more competent administration, I wouldn't say that Erdogan is incompetent. It's just he, they need more focus is what Turkey is lacking. That's what I think they're lacking, not necessarily competence there. They've done decently well as of now. And they, so I, I wouldn't say that they're incompetent, but they need focus. If Turkey ever got an, an administration, or maybe if Erdogan worked things out and had more focus, Turkey could be a serious player, a very, very serious player that everyone would have to take seriously. They're a great power. I, I imagine they'll eventually take control of the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, and there's they'll, they'll have a showdown with France over it, they'll have a showdown with Greece over it, and they'll probably win. Yeah, if if they play their cards right, they'll probably win. And that'll be a massive shift in power dynamics, which will probably throw into question France's status as a great power again. Uh, which it, It's not something new to them. It's happened multiple times ever since Germany became a thing, you know. But uh, that'd be a massive shift. Turkey is a great power. Now, France is a great power, too. Germany is a great power, too. Britain's a great power, too. But it's important to keep in perspective that there's more than just three powers we're talking about when we talk about the multipolar world. So, keeping in mind all the other countries, all the other major countries at play here, of course there's a whole bunch of additional, not necessarily great powers, but perhaps regional or minor powers. It's The world isn't just the great powers, but... Keeping in mind that that list of great powers is pretty a pretty long one compared to what it used to be, you get a better sense of what the multipolar world is really looking like as of now. And when you look at the movements of India, it's, it's not that India is just ingrained in the US, Japan, Australia, anti-China alliance. It's more so they're there, but they have their own purposes. They have their own interests. And it's unwise to assume that their interests are whatever we say that they are. They're gonna. Uh, I mean, again, I point to that one interview that this uh, Indian politician did. 
where he said India has uh, 1.5 billion people, then they are entitled to be their own side. They will be their own side. So what side they end up on, if they do choose a side, what's, what side they end up being more aligned with is more accurate. Oh, where their interests line up with are going to be important to see. Because if their interests line up with China, who can stop the two of them? If their interests line up with Russia, what, would it, what are you going to do to stop that? What sanctions are you going to be able to throw at Russia that's going to stop that from happening? If they have India in their corner. If they, for whatever reason, have a great streak of relations with Iran. Oh, wow. Iran, Iran has a very powerful partner. Things like that. It's important to look out for. And then you have smaller countries and how they align. Like, do they go with China? Do they go with India? Do they go with Iran? Because it's, it's the Western-dominated model is crumbling. The U.S.-dominated model is crumbling. The U.S. alliance system is crumbling and it's going to be replaced with something, even if that something is a, a whole collection of regional orders with regional powers at its at their centers and larger, you know, uh, larger regional entities created by the great powers or even the civilization states like Russia, Iran, India or China. But it's important to look at these things when look well, I keep saying look it's important to keep those things in mind when we're talking about the this age of change and again I I don't know why this this one SCO meeting made all this click in my mind but this is what we're talking about when we talk about the long game for Russia uh, and again it's not just them but I'll focus on Russia the Russia's the country of the hour right now they're looking for the alternative to the U.S. system, alternative to the petrodollar, alternative to the U.S. alliance system, alternative to the, the rules-based international order. You name it, an alternative to the U.S. empire. Uh, again, just look at the Belt and Road Initiative. How many countries willingly signed on to that? Why would they sign on to this willingly if our system was so good to them? There's a massive market for an alternative to the Western and really U.S.-dominated system. Well, now we can either fight it or we can chart it and navigate it so that we benefit. I'll talk a, a good deal about that in the anniversary episode next week. But we're in a massive age of change here. So when you we're looking at these alternatives being presented and countries signing on willingly. Countries sign on willingly to the SCO. Turkey willingly went to try to join the SCO. Countries were willingly looking to join the BRICS. Uh, I believe Turkey was one of them as well. You, you had the BRICS, the SCO. Uh, eventually you'll have a couple countries trying to join the Eurasian Economic Union with Russia. Why are they going in that direction? If what they had was so good to them. They wouldn't be. They're looking for their options. And they think that they have a better shot with these organizations than they do, perhaps, with us. And we, we have to think about that. Uh, especially for those of us who think that the U.S. has to, you know, dominate these areas and not concede them to China. We have 
to incentivize them to stay. And it has to be in a way that doesn't cost us too much because then you'll lose the support for it at home. Uh, America's in a pretty interesting position when it comes to its domestic politics, which I'm certain will eventually shake out to some new form of isolationism. It's just uh, it's an unfortunate waiting game for you, boy. But this is a really important shift here. It's a really, really, really important shift. I mean, we haven't seen a shift like this since World War II. And you hadn't, and before World War II happened, you wouldn't have seen such an important shift since Napoleon, the fall of Napoleon. So these are these are monumental shifts that are taking place here, and it's important to map them out. And that's what we do here on this podcast. Uh, a little bit. Uh, I won't pretend I know exactly which way every country's going, but I'll tell you where they end up when they get there. So it's easy. Well, it may be easy to get lost in the Russo-Ukrainian war and lose sight of everything else happening around the world. And I admit to being a little guilty of that myself. But when we step back and shift the focus just a little bit farther to the east, we can see an entire new world being formed. An entire new world being formed. And that world is uh, increasingly... Uh, what, oh, I, I skipped a note... <laughs> That world is that is increasingly Eurasian-based. This is the world that Russia is increasingly turning to as an economic safeguard from America and from Europe and our sanctions, the endless sanctions we want to turn to. And with the sanctions war we've waged, they have proven, it's not theoretical anymore, it's, it's proven fact, that they are beyond the reach of our sanctions. They, we can't destroy them with our sanctions. So now they become a model for other countries to look at and repeat. They become, in essence, a scientific model, if you will, or a scientific formula. It becomes a formula where you can take it, you can repeat it over and over and over and over again in the same condition, and you theoretically get the same result over and over and over and over again. That's going to have implications. That's going to have some serious implications when it comes to sanctions. Uh, no, I've never been a fan of sanctions, so I don't mind seeing them go away. I don't think trying to cancel entire countries is a good idea for foreign policy. And it certainly shouldn't be the only foreign policy tool you have to dealing with countries you disagree with. Uh, uh, I'm pretty sure half the populace disagrees with me on that, and they either want to sanction Russia or sanction China. But looks like the sanctions weapon is disappearing altogether, so looks like we're going to have to listen to uh, good old Sean Wade of the This Week in Geopolitics uh, podcast. But, yeah, this is, it's a whole new world. It's a whole new world. It'll be very interesting to learn about as it develops, you know. And it's, it's Eurasia. Uh, and for those who don't know what Eurasia is, I keep saying it, it's the combined landmass of Europe and Asia. So, Europe, the Middle East, Asia, <laughs> that's Eurasia. But for the time being, the Europeans don't really want to be a part of Eurasia. So Eurasia begins with the Russian border, or even the Belarusian border, if you really want to push it out a little bit further. It begins with Belarus and goes to the rest of Asia. <laughs> It goes around Ukraine 
and goes to the rest of Asia, including Turkey. So there, there's Eurasia. But that's some pretty significant developments we're looking at. Some pretty significant developments we're looking at. And it'll be very, again, it's going to be very interesting to cover them because uh, we, haven't, we haven't been in a time of change like this in quite some time. So as uh, precarious as it might get at times, uh, I, I'm looking at my own country as being very, very guilty in this regard for making it precarious because it, no one wants to give up being number one. Uh, even if we would benefit more from going home, no one, no one wants to leave China or Russia alone. So I, where there's, I imagine there'll be conflict over that in due time. But it'll be very interesting to see how things shake out. Very, very interesting. Um, and, but at, at the same time that this meeting was happening, you had various things happening in Russia's backyard. As we were talking about Eurasia... <coughs> Two of the Eurasian nations, who happen to be in the SCO, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, they had another border skirmish. Uh, this took place between them. Uh, now, from what I understand, it wasn't military on military this time, like it was um, the first time I covered a skirmish between these two, where there were actual uh, tanks and armored units shooting at each other and troops. Um, from what I can tell, this is largely a civilian effort, uh, a civilian militant effort, but not government against government, army against army. Uh, uh, it's one of a number of flare-ups that we've seen over the past few months, although, again, it seems like the two governments of Kyrgyzstan and of Tajikistan are actually working together to try to keep the region stable. Uh, a ceasefire was declared on the 16th, so for me that's Friday. And uh, the ceasefire was violated a couple times. Uh, I just going off the fact that I'm reporting on this flare-up, but uh, there was there was a lot of deaths, a lot of deaths. But the ceasefire appears to be holding relatively stable right now. It's pretty uneasy. I can't say for certain that it's going to hold. Uh, as ceasefires these days seem to be incredibly fragile. Incredibly fragile. Um, just look at Libya. Just look at uh, Ethiopia. Uh, uh, going back f to the earlier ceasefires that were brought up between the Ethiopian government and Tigray, uh, which were violated almost immediately, and then the fighting resumed. So... And again, you can go to Armenia and Azerbaijan. You can even come right back to Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan right here to see that uh, ceasefires are very fragile in this day and age. And one ceasefire was violated so thoroughly that it resulted in the Russo-Ukrainian War, that being the ceasefire between Ukraine and the Donbass rebels. Uh, that ceasefire was broken routinely for eight years, and then you get a larger war. So, although the ceasefire is a good thing to have, let's put it in the context, it may it doesn't have the best of chances of surviving, but, but, it does have the backing of both governments here. They, then they are working with each other. Um, the, the Kyrgyz government evacuated over 100,000 people from the border region. Um, they've announced withdrawal of troops from the Tajikistan border. And... 
the Kyrgyzstan government has also announced that they are conducting joint border patrols with the Tajikistan government. So there appears to be some pretty comprehensive um, collaboration here between the two governments to keep the region stable. So that should make the ceasefire last. Hopefully it does. Um, it, 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 the chances, the, the, I'll bring up the chances again. There's a very good chance that it, the ceasefire is broken and we end up with another round of fighting. But with both of the militaries on the side of the ceasefire, not on the side of fighting each other, and making such agreements like this, evacuations, joint border patrols, it looks like the the situation is going to be brought under control. Uh, but the current death total right now is a confirmed 81... I, I almost said million people, goodness. Uh, a, not 81 million people, just 81 people. Um, that's the confirmed death total, 46 being Kyrgyz and 35 Tajiks. So, perhaps we can assume that the Tajiks started the conflict? based on these numbers, and there was a very ample response in the Kyrgyz, that's an assumption, but that's just judging by the numbers, but that, those are the, the numbers we have, luckily it didn't go higher than that, it could have, but it didn't, so thankfully, and although I did see very large numbers of wounded, I did see very, very large numbers of wounded, that figure is easily in the 300s, I only saw the figures for one side, I believe... I believe it was for Kyrgyzstan, and it was around 146 people. So if you applied roughly the same number of people to Tajikistan, you're looking at almost 300 people injured but not dead. So, at least the two governments are working together to get this under control. And I imagine the Russians will uh, step in to help as well. So, uh, things appear to be getting under control here. And in the Caucasus, we had a flare-up between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, they, they got into another round of fighting. And this time, the aggressor is more clearly Azerbaijan. The, the first time they, they had their war, uh, well, the first time that we covered it, which was, um, actually, I'm pretty sure it was my very first episode. The first time, well, that being 2020, it was sort of ambiguous which side began the fighting. But by the end of it, it was pretty clear that Azerbaijan had got the upper hand. Although Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh were mobilizing men for war. But now we have a very clear aggressor in Azerbaijan. And Armenia is really struggling with the Azerbaijani military. Uh, which is probably why the Azerbaijanis are so confident in attacking them at random and at will, which indicates a shift in the power dynamics between the two. In the past, it was Armenia that had the better army, and they were always able to defend themselves from, uh, you know, Azerbaijan, which is sort of how Nagorno-Karabakh keeps its de facto independence in the first place. It was Armenian military supremacy. But now, with the tables having been turned, and the Azerbaijanis having the supremacy of military, that throw that really calls into question the status of Nagorno-Karabakh. Because if Armenia's military cannot 
win against Azerbaijan's military, then what underpins the independence, well, the the autonomy, I should say, they're not independent. What underpins the autonomy of Nagorno-Karabakh, if not the Armenian army? That's a, a very consequential question that is probably going to remain unresolved for the time being uh, with the number of ceasefires that keep getting drawn and the amount of Russian attention that is in this region. I don't think the Russians are going to allow Azerbaijan to annex anything. But if, for whatever reason, the Russians happen to look away for long enough, say, if they were to ramp up their efforts in Ukraine... Again, there's more talk of that going to a, uh, going beyond a special military operation and going into an anti-terrorism operation. They have yet to make any of those changes, but there's talk of it. But for the time being, I, I don't see Azerbaijan having the diplomatic uh, the, the 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 diplomatic cover. I don't see Azerbaijan having the diplomatic and political cover to pursue an annexation. They can bleed Armenia dry, though, with these skirmishes, assuming they continue to win them with their military, what they're being supplied by Turkey, so they should be able to continue on this way until Russia puts its foot down. Uh, that That's the determining factor here. If Russia puts its foot down, this has to stop. And it does stop every time Russia does put its foot down. But every time Russia looks away, the Turks are there in the, the Azerbaijani corner saying, it's time to go. It's time to go. And Iran is largely silent. They're the other major power here. They're largely silent on these things happening, on the goings-on in the Caucasus, uh, for the time being anyway. We might, if Russia is, for whatever reason, unable or unwilling to get involved, I imagine Iran might step in at some point as well. And that would create a new dynamic between the powers. But we have Azerbaijan getting a clear military dominance over Armenia, which calls into question the regional autonomy of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is within Azerbaijan. If Armenia can't protect them, what happens to that province? Who knows? I don't think Azerbaijan can annex them. Uh, For the time being, they might prove me wrong. But... Regardless, the the round of fighting was apparently bad enough for Armenia to ask Russia and the rest of the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, for help. Uh, It remains to be seen if they will get that help, um, or if they'll need it, maybe they'll just be another ceasefire signed, uh, what have you. But with all these brushfire conflicts popping up in Russia's backyard, uh, at the time when they're in a, well, I say war, they say special military operation. I'm going to say war because it's a three-letter word and it's easier to say. But they're in a war with Ukraine right now. They need to be focused. They have the military assets that they can deploy to this region, but it would take their attention away from Ukraine. They wouldn't be able to put their full attention on Ukraine. Uh, And they're probably trying to do this one at a time. Like, they can do all these things, but it would be really important for them to focus all their attention on Ukraine to minimize their losses, not lose civilian lives very, uh, you know, at random as casualties and collateral damage. They don't want to do that because I'm pretty sure because they want to keep the land when they're done, 
you're gonna need a really positive opinion from the pe the people uh, goodness the, the population living there don't know what language I was speaking but the way Russia is conducting the war is in a way that would give them the legitimacy at the very least in the eyes of a large enough portion of the Ukrainian population to stick around for a while you know the the minimalization of civilian losses and collateral damage uh, from destroying buildings, destroying infrastructure. They've been avoiding doing those things. Even when they shut the power off last week, they, it was in a way that it was able to come back on very quickly. So it didn't necessarily shut down civilian life, but hindered the Ukrainian military instead. Russia's being very, very, very light-handed in this war, and thank God they are. They could have done this Desert Storm style, and they we probably would have seen upwards of 100,000 Ukrainian civilians dead by now. But for now, it looks like there's more military dead than civilian, which marks a radical departure from wars that have been fought since World War I. We, have, we haven't seen that since World War I. That was the last major war that was fought where more people died in uh, in the military than civilians died. World War II was a very different case, and it's been more civilians than military ever since. So hopefully this trend continues where it's only the people fighting the war that die, not the civilians. But with all these brushfire conflicts popping up in Russia's backyard, and it, heck, there was even a Georgian MP, uh, Georgia the country, not the state, there was even a Georgian MP jokingly mentioning holding a referendum on whether or not to declare war on Russia, to open up a second front. Now, he might have been joking. Some people might have taken him seriously. Uh, I know the, the people on the on Reddit, where I, I initially saw the story from, took it seriously. But I'm sure the Russians are considering that possibility seriously as well, even if it was a joke on the part of this MP. All these conflicts popping up in their backyard which opens up questions of whether or not Russia can properly handle them all at once. This is a lot of pressure being put on Russia because these are Russian protectorates. Uh, Russia has a protectorate in the Caucasus. They're, they're the protector there. Russia's the protector of Central Asia. Russia's the protector of, of Belarus. And soon enough, they'll be the protector of Ukraine as well. But uh, um, the Ukrainians don't want to hear that. <laughs> But these are all well within Russia's sphere of influence. So it's expected that Russia's going to have a response. So can they handle them all at the same time? I say yes, but it would distract them from Ukraine. But even with questions on what exactly Russia's going to do about all these skirmishes in their backyard, it is evident, uh, looking at again, the SCL, and what was going on between Russia and the rest of them, that these conflicts aren't going to distract Russia from the larger reorientation towards Eurasia that they're making. The war in Ukraine is ultimately, as important as it, as it is for Russia to keep its full attention on Ukraine, the war in Ukraine is ultimately going to be a, a short-term event. It might even be over by this time next year. It's going to be a short-term event in the, the grand scheme of things. But the transition taking place that Russia's going through right now 
towards Eurasia. That transition, which they're being joined in by a number of other countries, that's the longer term and ultimately more consequential event that's already helped Russia to withstand the economic war being waged on them by Europe and by the United States. They're going to continue that transition. And it's going to give them more strength as they go along, perhaps enough strength to handle all these crises at once, and even be able to perhaps be able to solve them through indirect means. If everyone's integrated with you, they can't fight each other. We may see that. We may see it resolved in some other way. Perhaps it blows up into a war and the Russians have to send their troops in to put it down. Who knows? But we can see that the transition is Russia's real top priority here. And we can see that they're not going to be distracted from it. So what we can watch for is to see where this transition takes them and everyone else making the transition with them. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. I've been your host, Haishan Wade. Ah, The world is changing. And we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.